My name is Bill Crane. I'm an alcoholic. And, I, and I'm pretty loud, so, and I'm going to try to tend to this microphone. And, and if you, but if you can't hear me, just raise your hand and say, I can't hear you, and I'll try to aim better toward it. Uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, whoever was responsible uh, other than Bill. Maybe Bill gets all the blame, I don't know, for asking me and Kay to share in the 29th Al-Anon, uh, Alateen, Georgia State Convention's honor. This is a class operation. Uh, you know, you shower in there and they got a dispenser for a body gel and shampoo. <laughs> so this is uh, this is not your average state park, believe me. I've, I've stated it. So it's a real honor. I, it's good to see old friends, people I've met from primarily from speaking down here. And of course, Pauline did a the perils of Pauline. She did a. Um, dynamite job last night and uh, I hope before I sit down that you'll have some idea of my indebtedness to Al-Anon and I think sometime I've, I've talked at a couple of Al-Anon events in the past and I think maybe sometimes why I'm asked is because I hope to be clear just what I owe uh, in, I've got a little time left after the announcement so I'm going to hurry up and get that Al-Anon uh, <laughs> Uh, get that Al-Anon speaker, uh, Alateen speaker up here, um, and I'm just uh, thrilled to death to see so many good-looking faces out there. I, uh, I was born in a home with a dual problem. We had alcoholism and Southern baptism right there in the same home. <laughs> two, two powerful conditions. Uh, you don't get over either one of those things. You know, once uh, once, once alcoholic, always alcoholic. Once a Baptist, you're always a Baptist. You know? Set your cord. And thank God for what we learn at our mother's knee. You know, whether it be baptism or Catholicism or whether you're a Presbyterian or Buddhist or whatever the heck you are. Those good moral teachings, those those good things imposed on us as as we're coming up, I think, give us a leg up when we come into something like AA or Al-Anon, where there's a spiritual recovery offered. Because the I think the people that don't, are not offered that in their upbringing have a little harder time getting started. Even though I turned completely away from anything religious, anything spiritual, anything moral, anything good that I learned. But I came along uh, with that. And let me say this about my daddy, who was alcoholic. He was a kind and gentle man. He was not a violent or mean or unpredictable antisocial alcoholic like I became. He was a good daddy who read to me. He was a good daddy who doted on me. He was a good daddy who showed his love to me. But his alcoholism still sickened everybody in the family because of its power. And I knew I would never drink coming up, but I had problems. I was a difficult kid, a, a, a problem child, I guess, in some ways. Not, I wasn't mean. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't an antisocial in my behavior to a criminal degree, but just kind of a problem. You know, nowadays they have diagnoses for children like me. They put letters after that. I've got a grandson. You know, they got ADD, ADHD. Some, you know, they, had, they didn't have that back in my day. Uh, the way I like to put it, I came along before Ritalin. <laughs> the drug of choice in my day was paddling. Um, and, and I would determine not to get in trouble to do better and to fit into the system and to satisfy authority, please authority, and it just didn't seem I could live up to that. Now, there's a part in our book, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, that where Bill writes, we sought lower companionship. It's part of the progression of our disease of alcoholism. I was doing that in the third grade. Uh, not consciously, but I was drifting probably to, to a company, to associates who were probably more like me, having problems adjusting. So I, by the time I reached puberty, I was probably pretty well 
involved totally with, uh, mostly, with uh, young folks that were kind of like me. I became a cat, uh, which is kind of the rebellious thing. This is before hippies and all this other stuff. A cat was with a ducktail hair, and, and no, nobody in this room is old enough to remember that. So I'm going <laughs> to explain it to you. We kind of it's, it was kind of that ducktail hair and pig pants, wear the pants real low and look tough. Inhale lucky strikes. I remember learning to inhale. A big deal. Of course, the young people it didn't impress them now because they put stuff in their lungs that we never heard of back then. But back then, it was a big deal to inhale a camel or a lucky strike and look tough. And I wasn't a cat for a long time, but I was a cat for long enough to to not only learn to smoke Lucky Strikes, but to learn to drink. Now, with all the guilt and fear that I associated with beverage alcohol, I began to drink. Now, that's real interesting, but I know that probably a greatest no the greater number of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who share their experience, where I've been in, in, in their company and heard it, come from backgrounds like this, and they begin to drink too. I had every reason from what I witnessed in my home, every reason from my religious training, every reason in the world to never drink, and I began to drink. And I was a social drinker for a while. As best I can figure, I was a social drinker for about six weeks. <laughs> and what ended my social drinking was I ingested enough alcohol one night. I can remember where we were, who I was with. I was with a couple of other young fellows. I ingested enough to feel it, to know intoxication. And that ended anything like social drinking, that ended anything like drinking with impunity. That started what I know as the progression of alcoholism. Now what alcohol has to do for a person, as I understand it, for him or her to be alcoholic, it has to do something special for them. Now I'm married to one of the worst cases of non-alcoholism you've ever seen in your life. That you could soak her in alcohol for five years and she's not going to become alcoholic. Because alcohol does not do that thing for her that it did for me. Now when I drink alcohol, this cannot be explained to someone who is not an alcoholic. It doesn't require explanation to someone who is because they automatically know what I'm talking about and know the feeling. But right from the get-go, it did something for me that made me comfortable in a world that for the most part for me was uncomfortable. And maybe that's true of all adolescents. I was five, 15 and a half years old. It made me enough. It made me unafraid. It filled a hole that I didn't even know was there until it was filled. So I was hooked. Didn't know that. I assumed what it did for me, it did for everybody. I assumed what it did for me, it did for Sonny and Charlie. Let me tell you real quickly what happened to Sonny and Charlie. Sonny was a neighbor who, uh, just one block up, my oldest and dearest friend, who had two alcoholic parents. His situation was much, much worse than mine with two alcoholic parents. When he was 15 years old, he had to sit in the trial of his father who was accused of murdering his mother that he witnessed. But see, Sonny never became alcoholic. Alcohol, even though he drank with us and fought with us and ran up and down the road and, and, and raised hell with us, alcohol did not work. So Sonny lived till his dying day taking he heavy psychotropic medications to keep him stable, to keep him functional, because alcohol didn't work. Charlie, on the other hand, was like me. Alcohol did work for him the other person that I drank that first time with. And Charlie drank and drank and drank, and, some, and one day a doctor told him, if you drink again, your liver is so damaged, your liver is so cirrhotic, you'll die. And Charlie drank again, the doctor was right, he died. And then there's me. Now, I can't explain it, I can't take credit for it, I can only say that I hope I'm nearly grateful enough that I'm standing here being asked to share with you when I have no reason not to be like Sonny, no good reason for not to be like Charlie. 
I just know that alcohol worked in the beginning. And I'm going to tell my progression of alcoholism, I hope, pretty quick. Because my progression is no different from yours if you be alcoholic. It's no different from your loved one if you be a loved one, family member of an alcoholic. It's all the same. Now, sometimes we, we look for different, particularly when we're new. We're all different when we're new. Even if we come to our first AA meeting knowing we got a drinking problem, even if we know we've got, hey, I might be alcoholic, when we sit down in that chair, we're saying, my case is different. I'm a little worse, I'm a little better, I'm a little smarter, I'm a little dumber, I'm whatever, but my case is different. But what we find out, what I find out, and I think most of us do, that we're so similar, it's uncanny. I can meet one of you who be alcoholic and know you for five minutes and you'll know more about me on a certain level than my wife can know because we think alike. We are alike. We know that, 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 that core of us is uncannily similar. In the beginning, I began to drink and, and, and continue to drink because it did for me what I tried to describe. There's another thing about alcoholism, too. I love Dr. Silkworth's chapter in the big book. It's, my, it's probably my favorite chapter because it's the greatest explanation of our condition, the greatest explanation of what makes Bill Crawford tick as far as a scientist is concerned. Now, a lot of great studies have been done about us. Yeah. Boy, they've killed enough rats, you know, getting, giving them seizures and all that. Studying it. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have, a, we have a condition that's been deemed a disease by the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Hospital Association, all the great scientific associations. So we have a condition that demands some sort of research. Now, I've always said that they've never spent a dime studying you folks that ain't alcoholic. Let me tell you about my non-alcoholic. Since there's never been a, a federal grant to come down and study, I've studied her. <laughs> now, she doesn't drink much. That's an understatement. Twice a year, maybe. Well, if we go out to a very special dinner, she'll drink a glass of wine. Now, every alcoholic in this room knows that's a waste of a good glass of wine. <laughs> but she'll drink it for whatever reason. Whatever reason. Now, you non-alcoholics probably know. Whatever reason she drinks that glass of wine. Dr. Silkworth says there is a phenomenon of craving that occurs to us. It's peculiar to us. Our class, the alcoholic, doesn't happen to her. Let me tell you what I have learned, I believe, to be the difference between me and her. And maybe the difference between us and them. Because as I say, not a penny's been spent. Not one great scientific mind has gone into the work of studying them. Somebody that drinks a glass of wine and doesn't want any more, that demands research. <laughs> somebody, somebody should have looked into that a long time ago. And I've asked her, because there had been a time or two, especially when we were young, we were very young, we were high, we were high school sweethearts, but there had been a time or two where she's ingested enough to feel it. And then she stops for sure. And then I say, why do you do that? You get the pilot lit. You know what it's like to get the pilot lit? <laughs> and you stop. Why do you do that? She says, because when I start to feel it, I feel out of control. Yeah. Ain't that interesting? The same drug, ethanol, hits her ne central nervous system just like it hits mine makes her feel out of control. It was the only thing that gave me any semblance of control. I don't have to know why, I don't have to study, I don't have to kill another rat or whatever. That's all I need to know. She can't help it, 
I can't help it. Let me tell you about when I saw that what Dr. Silkworth said about the phenomenon of craving, because Dr. Silkworth did not set out to do a study of us. He just headed a hospital where he treated thousands of us. He had what is called empirical knowledge. He observed what was going on. And, the, and he came to this conclusion, if nothing else. These people are different. They're different in a way that they can't help. They're different physically. And he said, I'm going to tell you what I call it. I call it an allergy. They are allergic to something they can't resist. And he said they have something that I'll call the phenomenon of craving. And I knew about that. I experienced that very early in my drinking. I knew that if I had a drink or two drinks, I was going to be worse off, feeling worse than if I had none. I knew if I was in a situation where I wanted to drink very badly and I could only get one, then I was going to be more agitated, more uncomfortable, more craving than if I had none. I can't help that. And that Kay doesn't have that phenomenon of craving, she can't help that. That hit me right in the running lights. I had the phenomenon of craving right from the get-go. Another thing the experts say, and we got to believe the experts because they've spent time and money and scientific studies on us and our condition, is this blackout deal, these amnesia spells. Normal drinkers don't have that. Now, if you want to experiment with that, you can do, because normal drinkers can drink. Non-alcoholics can drink. There are a whole bunch of non-alcoholics in this room. Y'all can drink. Non-alcoholics can even become intoxicated. New Year's Eve, a lot of non-alcoholics are out there intoxicated. Nothing more dangerous than a non-alcoholic. <laughs> with a blood alcohol count of about a .07 out there on the road trying to drive. It's a disgusting thing. <laughs> there are men in this room, there are women in this room, if they be alcoholic, that have been blowing a .30. Three times the uh, level of intoxication. Driving straight as an arrow. Because of training. Uh, <laughs> because of experience. We've learned little tricks, you know, get those three lines down to one. If it's a little stuffy in the car, maybe you hit out the window. Might be going 18 miles an hour, but that person, that non-alcoholic, if they become intoxicated to whatever extent, they will very likely remember everything the next day. I very early begin to lose, have those lapses in memory. Even before I knew I was having lapses in memory, I'd get a report <laughs> on something I'd done or places I'd been and this kind of thing. Peculiar to our class. Or to put it this way, if you're having these episodes of amnesia and you're wondering if you're an alcoholic, sign up. Uh, <laughs> You belong. I begin to lose control of the amount I drank. That's alcoholism. Doesn't happen to normal folks. I begin to plan to drink this much and drink that much. I begin to plan to get home at a certain time and get home way out there at a time. I begin to lose control of my behavior. I begin to act in ways that I had not predicted. I begin to act in ways that are antisocial. Now, all of this took period. My whole drinking life was only about 14 years. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 29 years old, and people would say, people about my age would come to me and say, aren't you smart to come in at your age? And they would say, I drank for 40 years. And I think to myself, you didn't drink like I did for 40 years. Because I hit the ground running. My, it was immediate with me, this illness. What alcohol did for me is what, what caused the problem. What alcohol does for us, it, any of us, 
is what causes the problem. If it doesn't do anything for us, it's not going to do anything to us. It's what alcohol does to us that hopefully brings us to our knees and brings us to help. And alcohol was doing to me very early, but I had to have what it was doing for me. I, uh, uh, the physical thing, this thing Silkworth called allergy, was, was very prevalent, very acute with me. I discovered, as we like to say, that morning drink. I learned to, in time to get in when I woke up, whether it was the morning or whatever, to take another drink. And of course, this caused bender drinking. And in my 20s, I would be laying in bed day after day, confined to the house, confined to the bed, drinking to oblivion. It was rapid. Now, what happened? Uh, this this thing that God does for us. This miracle that I hope we never take for granted that brings us here to help. Initially happened, I guess, and I and I guess in 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 my heart and, and, and in some deep part of my brain I was trying to reach out for help. I was trying to get something. I remember at one time I uh went to our minister. Kay and I were going to a little Baptist church, the church that she was raised in, and I joined it, and I would, go to, I would go to him, and I reached out to him. In the sessions I'd have with him, 90% of the time I was pretty drunk. And he would say, because he was a smart guy, he would say, let me call my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't help you with this. And I declined that. Kay and I ended up going to him together. Because I thought it was a marriage problem. He thought it was a drinking problem. So did she. And now a conversation would all get around to my drinking and not to her housekeeping. In that chapter or that paragraph in the big book where, you know, we took a trip, didn't take a drink, we drank the fortified wine, the night, you know, all, that, all the things we tried. I went through all of that. Much of that. And then a day came, I was working for a crooked company, and, and, and I'd been up to St. Louis for two weeks with this company. It was a pretty crooked company. And I'd worked myself into management with this crooked company. I was up there for two, two weeks to, for a purpose, and I was up there pretty drunk for two weeks. And by then, I had learned to taper off. Uh, my daddy used to taper off. Taper off, tapering off, if you be alcoholic, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's when you try to sort of self-detox. And you know that if you just cut it off abruptly, it's pretty bad. But if you can sort of dose yourself down, uh, it's, uh, it's more comfortable, or at least you hope for that. Uh, the problem was that Kay couldn't tell the difference in tapering off and drinking. It looks a lot alike. Uh, and I would explain to her a lot. Uh, you know, I, I quit drinking yesterday. I'm tapering off. Uh, and what would add to her confusion is sometime I'd overdose tapering off and just have to start over. So when I got off that plane flying to Greensboro and she was picking me up, I was in the airport lounge there tapering off. And she picked me up. And I got home, brought me home, and for some reason she and the kids had to go somewhere. And I was in, I got down to my drinking uniform, my underwear. I was a fun drinker. You know, I always tell the new people when they're afraid they're not going to have any more fun, I get them to do a kind of a quick inventory of the fun they were having. Let me tell you something about my fun. If you ever see a beer commercial and how they, they're just having the greatest time in the world, the gals are beautiful and the guys are tough and good looking. They're playing tug of war on the beach or whatever, this kind of thing, or Coors Light, you know, Miller Light or something. My drinking was not tug of war on the beach with beautiful women. Uh, <laughs> It would be, if I wanted to say my beer drinking, because I would try to taper off from the beer drinking, it would be getting up out of that stupor and going to the refrigerator and getting that beer out and drinking as much as I could and get it down to get that pilot lit again. And then that gag reflex hitting me and me grabbing my mouth, because I never was at the right place, and blowing that beer out my nose. 
You miss that uh, when you come in. And I've always thought that if you did an equal time like they do with politics, if they just after one of those tug-of-war beautiful people commercials, if they could have one of those gals blow one out her nose to, <laughs> to show there's another side to that drinking. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, I'm standing there with a, enough buzz on, I guess, underwear. And I went to the phone directory, looked up Alcoholics Anonymous, and called them. So I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous, the man that brought AA to Greensboro in the 40s, would call on my daddy at my mother's request, Bill Hunter. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous in, in 1966 was no secret. And I called him. And then it was an answering service that answered the phone for various businesses, including Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, a man by the name of Bill Norman, who's been dead now, about, I guess about five years, called me, maybe four years, as a result of my contact with the answering service. And we talked. And he, he recognized, I guess, from the way I was talking and so forth, that I might be drinking. And his attitude about tapering off was about like K's. Uh, he didn't see the difference either. And so he didn't want to run to my, rush to my aid in that condition. And I'm glad that's the way he handled this 12-step call. But I had his name written down and his phone number. And when Kay got home uh, from wherever she was and whatever she was doing with the children, and she wasn't too happy, and she hadn't been too happy that whole afternoon after picking me up, I had that name and number to be like a cross to a vampire, you know, hush. <laughs> uh, I have uh, turned myself into the ANA and... He and I agree I'm not ready yet, but I'm going to call him. And I guess probably if I had to guess, I know I can't, I'm not sure I was capable of recognizing a look of hope, but she probably had a look of hope on her face for the hundredth time when I'd made promises. Or look at least of some sort of idea that it may work. And that number and name went in a safe place where she put it, and sometime later, when I didn't live up to that, I'm going to call him back promise, she called him back. <laughs> now, this is my al deal. If you think what you're doing here is just for you, let me tell you what happened to me, to us. She called this number. Now, Kay had done all kinds of things. I've later learned this was not the first time she'd reached out to someone she'd even plunked a little literature around the house that she'd picked up from somebody about alcoholism that I didn't read and I knew she'd reached out to this and that and whatever but she was talking this day or this evening whenever she made this call to someone who not only understood, but he offered a solution. He listened to her sympathetically like we do when a family member calls us, I hope. But more importantly, he said, hold the phone. My wife goes to something called Al-Anon. And it does her so much good. And Lib got on the phone and began to tell Kay about Al-Anon. And Kay started going on Wednesday nights to something called the Central AA Women's Auxiliary in 19 somewhere early 1967 and they might have called it the auxiliary but they were doing Al-Anon and as I've said a hundred times from podiums like this if you're drinking you're alcoholic and you're as they say nowadays significant other goes to Al-Anon it's likely won't cure your drinking that's not what it's designed to do but it'll break your rhythm I'll guarantee you that <laughs> game change 
now I know what happened. I couldn't appreciate it then. Now I know what happened. My disease began to lose its power over her. Now she would tell you, if she was up here talking, she would tell you it was just a little bit, just an inch at a time, just pecking away. Not a great, big, you know, upheaval of change, but my disease began to lose its power over her. She found fellowship. She found comfort. She found a spiritual solution to alcoholism that was sickening her. And I know now in retrospect that what was happening to her influenced me. That's not the design for alcohol, for Al-Anon. I know that. But it began to affect me in a positive way. I know in retrospect. So my experience is somebody in that mess needs to start getting well. Somebody in the alcoholism deal needs to start finding the solution. The only hope for a sickened family is for someone to break out of that somewhere. Now we target so much on that sick alcoholic, the one that's uh, the one that's making all the noise. But sometime if somebody will just break out and start getting well, the game changes. So I credit Al-Anon more than anything else for getting me to the doorway of Alcoholics Anonymous. I ran out of schemes. I ran out of plans. I ran out of tricks. My bag of tricks was empty. And on June the 2nd of 1967, which through this moment is my sobriety date, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I did. I don't know if any of y'all old enough remember when phones had holes in it before they had the button. <laughs> And I was coming off a drunk, and she knew I couldn't get my finger in that hole seven times, and so she ran her around for me because she looked at me and that night when I was shaking and coming off that drunk and said, can we call Bill? I knew about Bill. She'd been telling me about Bill. She'd been telling me about Lib when I would listen. And I said, yes. She dialed the phone, got Bill on the phone, handed me the phone, and I remember as clear today as I did that night, probably clearer, when he said, are you about ready to throw in the towel now? And it was. So I'd hit the wall. I didn't have another option. I didn't have another lie that even I could believe. There's no other dodges. This was a fairly late hour on a Friday night, and he said, I'll come see you in the morning. And Bill came on June the 3rd, 1967, that little house I was about to lose. Payments were $100 a month. I couldn't make them. Cameron Brown Mortgage was going to sell it on the courthouse steps. And he sat in the living room in that little house, and he did what we I would picture as a classic 12-step call. He was generous with his time with me and generous with apparent his caring, apparently his caring for me. And you know how your attention span is when you're coming off a drunk I was about ready for him to leave, I guess, and when he made the deal with me. Will you not drink today and go with me to AA tonight? If I had had another dodge, if I had had another delay tactic up my sleeve, I would have refused or postponed, but I didn't. Now, he offered to pick me up, and I didn't want him picking me up. You know, the AA van pulling out in front of the house. Right now. <laughs> I said, I'll, uh, I'll meet you there. And Kay and I took the old Mercury. I had one of those non-repossessable cars. You ever had one? The guy shows up to repossess it, and you show him the wreck side. Wait a minute. And you show him the wreck side, and he gives you an extension. He didn't want that car back when he sees the side he hadn't looked at. We took the Mercury over there to the Starmount Group. Starmount Group is my home group still. Now, that was 18 years sabbatical, for, sabbatical from that group when I went to Charlotte to take a job and retired. I came back and rejoined the Starmount Group. Now, that group on Saturday nights, the big speaker meeting, has 200 people. Then it had 18 or 20. And then we met in the small ladies' study 
in that Presbyterian church. And I went into uh, this beautiful plush room with upholstered furniture and sat down and listened to my first day a meeting. Now, I was in a room with good-looking people with sanity there in their eyes, and they looked nice, and even the cars in the parking lot looked good. <laughs> Let me tell you where my life was at that time. Let me tell you where my social schedule was. Because I know I later, in, and sometimes in just working with new people today, but certainly when I worked I, I, for a lot of years, I worked with a company where I, in the EAP where I worked with the new drunks. You know, they're just out of treatment, and you'd have to work AA into their schedule. You know, you know well, I got soccer practice, this, you know. I'm like, AA did not need to be worked into any schedule of mine when I came to AA. I had been kicked out for life from the Bamboo Lounge. Now, I don't mean to brag. <laughs> I'd been kicked out of other places. But the Bamboo Lounge, when you've been kicked out of there, you're done. Uh, you don't notch down uh, from the Bamboo Lounge. That's where you go when nobody else will have you. I wasn't even welcome there. So my nights were free as far as AA was concerned. I sat there, and, and the miracles that happened in my life, I know are not singular. They've happened in yours, but I, I deem them precious and valuable. The miracles that, that kept me alive and breathing in and out until that night, but certainly that night. Here's a guy that had been sober one day. My attention span, as I say, was five minutes long. To sit still for 50 minutes and listen to someone do what I'm doing tonight would have been impossible, except that something was working in my life that night. And miracle number one is I understood this man's message that was giving us the talk. I couldn't repeat it a sentence that he spoke five minutes after the meeting, but I knew his message was that he had drunk alcohol hopelessly he went into great detail and then he'd come here and he hadn't been drinking and life was good I can't remember how long it was but it was a, to me it was a long time miracle number two and I guess the hook was I believed him and I hadn't believed anything or anybody in a long time I certainly didn't believe in support groups I told myself I didn't even believe in God anymore and I believe this old boy we left that plush room and went over to the fellowship hall now where we have the big meeting. And I watched you AAs and al eat that cake and drink that coffee. I didn't like sweets. Uh, I thought I'd outgrown my taste for sweets. I found out after I met some of the good old boys in AA that my blood sugar was jacked up so high I couldn't stand to be in the same room with a pie. At the time, I just thought I didn't like it. I sure didn't drink coffee. Coffee made me nervous. <laughs> and that's the miracle of uh, the recovery. That's the miracle of the human machine, the body. A week later, I'm slopping down coffee and spitting cake crumbs on somebody newer than me. And, <laughs> and that's when it began. That's the beginning of AA. And I'm going to uh, do a little recovery and sit down here. That's the beginning. Now, I thought, just like everybody thinks, I think, when they come into air, most of us think that this has to do with non-drinking and only not drinking. But see, I have become different in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't mean I've become wonderful. I don't mean I've developed great character or any of these things that will, you know, they're going to build a statue of me or any of that kind of thing. But I have become different in a positive way. Now, I didn't just become different because I quit drinking. I had to become different to not drink. And that's what this program is all about. Now, in the beginning, Bill, my original sponsor, told me, I want you to go to all these meetings. At that time, there were nine groups in Alcoholics uh, Anonymous uh, in Greensboro. Eleven meetings, because the central group met three times a, a week. Now there's a 
200 groups, I guess, 200 meetings in Greensboro. But at that time, it was nine. He said, I want you to skip Sunday night because there's a couple of screwballs that go to that meeting and they'll confuse you. Stay away from there. I could not wait till Sunday night <laughs> to sneak up there to the Sunday night. And then the two other screwballs were not real hard to distinguish. One of them uh, came to a very tragic end not too long after. He shot and tried to kill his wife and killed himself. So he was uh, mentally unbalanced. And the other one, we don't know what happened to him. He was just kind of a character. But I was an agnostic, so I shifted it from a two-screwball group to a three-screwball group, and I talked about my agnosticism. Let me tell you what happens in AA when you talk about that. People love you enough to give you the experience Say so we're so much alike, as I said earlier. If you think you're different, you're not. And I wanted to think I was different because of that. I told myself I didn't any longer believe in a God that cared about me. And people would say in that group, I used to be like you. And this is what I did. And people would say at the coffee pot before and after the meeting, I used to be like you, and this is what I did. And they'd give me simple instructions like... I, when I get up in the morning, I ask for this day without a drink, and when that worked at, at night, I, I, I say thank you. And you don't even have to believe, just try it. And I begin to do that because I didn't want to drink. I wanted to be like you looked. And it began to work. It began to work real good because I one night got up and picked up a three-month chip. That broke any kind of record I'd ever had since I was 15 years old. I knew something was working. I found myself praying outside of just that prayer in the morning, prayer at night. I found myself repeating that serenity prayer. I found myself coming to believe. There's no greater prayer in the world that I can think of than that third step prayer, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me, to do with me, etc., etc., you know, we're asked to voice that prayer because we're getting ready to do some stuff because we have to change. We have to be better to stay sober. Now, the incentive to do these things that were totally opposed to anything I would normally do came from I didn't want to die, not because I wanted to be a better person, to be more honorable, to have more character, to be honest, but I didn't want to die. And I sat down and did that inventory. The first inventory I did wasn't worth much. In fact, I, you know, I dodged the big book and looked it up in 12 and 12 and did it that way. And it was it, it, the whole content would be something I probably wouldn't mind saying just about anywhere. But the next time I did it, I did it by the big book and I put down those grudges. I put down the people I relate to because that's how you get to yourself. That's how Bill Crawford got to himself. Was how do I relate? What, you, what about these grudges? What about this resentment list? And I put down all the people that were in my life and it had been in my life. And I began to understand those two sentences that I think are probably as powerful of sentences that there are in our book where it says we begin to see the world and its people really dominated us. What a powerful sentence. That's who dominated me. It wasn't me controlling my life, and it certainly wasn't any sort of higher power like God in control of me. It was I was allowing other people, these relationships, dominating me. And even more powerful, that next sentence that says, in that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. And I began to realize that. And I went through that process and put down my faults and my fears and those things, and I knew myself in some, to some extent for the first time in my life. Now, I didn't want to sit down and tell somebody my life story. Yeah. Because we got secrets. There's certain things I'm not going to tell. Certain things you don't want to tell. But I did. And I tell newcomers now, don't, you know, don't worry about it. We're so much like, you're not going to shock anybody in AA if you take your fist down. 
with a member of AA that you trust, you're not going to shock him or her. Or if you do, they'll never let you know it because they, they don't want to be topped. Usually, yeah. And I, you know, I tell people, just think of the worst thing you can think of. And just go to your AA meeting and say it. See if, you know, just go up to the, you know, get around some old timers at the coffee pot before the meeting and say, I ate a live rat one time. <laughs> what wonderful relief to be able to, I, yeah, I've got a sponsor now. And we try to meet, we live in different towns, but we try to meet once a month and we email each other and I tell him, I feel sorry for you. You're the one has got to hear all my secrets all the time. Because I can't keep secrets. That's how I begin to, through this process, I had to be, begin to know the cancer of self that was eating me up from the inside. I did those amends and to make that past to complete the task of making the past an asset instead of a liability. The past in God's hands is my greatest asset. And when I do those things, when I pay those bills, when I make right, then I can answer the phone. I can go to the front door no matter who's there. I can walk down any street, anywhere, no matter who's coming. I don't have to change sides of the street. I don't have to look over my shoulder. That's the freedom it gives me. Our real purpose, we're told, is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and those about us. This is what we do to do that. I may be motivated to do these things because I don't want to die. I don't want to go to jail anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to come off any more drunks. I don't want to go through the shakes. I don't want to puke anymore. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose any more jobs. I may be motivated with all the horrors that I know that accompany my drinking and alcoholism. But the real purpose is to fit myself to be useful to God and those about me. I know that when I'm out of whack, when things ain't good and I, I don't feel right, it's not what's happened around me, and you heard that said already. It's how I, it's how I take it. It's how I react. It's how I respond. And so I've got to inventory myself real quick. And it, our program makes it easy. Anything that's wrong with me comes under one or more of these headings. Am I angry? Am I fearful? Is this dishonesty? The door when we make a 12-step call at motels and neighborhoods and all kinds of things and say, you got some steps I can start working. We never had that. To, it was always, you know, get me a shot, you know. Talk to my wife, get me back in the big bed or whatever. Take me to detox or whatever. But it always kept us sober. It kept us moving, kept our momentum and alcoholics on. That's the beauty of this program. And I'll just close with what I normally say. That Alcoholics Anonymous, the essence of it, the, 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 what is... Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, is about, in my experience, is when I'm instructed or told to do service, whether it's to wash the coffee cups or empty the ashtrays back in the old days or help set up the meeting or it's your turn to be chairman or whatever. Yeah, I realized I had to do these things to be sober. I realized that winners did these things, and if I wanted to have what they have and had the look in my eye that they have, I needed to do the things to emulate their actions, do the things they were doing. And those things begin to work. And one of the things I was doing when I got a little dryness behind me was to reach out to that person newer than me to help that person who was brand new in some cases or maybe just hurting worse than me, and I found new and wonderful feelings overcoming me. And I discovered what that feeling was that was new to me was that I would have brief moments where I cared more about someone else than I did me. There's no greater feeling than that. When I'm relieved of self to the extent I care more about you than I do me, there's no greater reward. 
let me say this and I'll shut up. Uh, uh, an old friend who's been in the program a long time, who's been going through some trouble lately with depression and stuff, he got a spiritual book, which is not an AA book or not a conference approved book, but it's a good book and it's just a, it just has some spiritual stories in it. And my favorite is the one about the ancient holy man. That as he's kneeling to pray, he sees the cripple, the beggar, the downtrodden. And he says to God, if you're such a powerful and loving God, why haven't you done something about this? And out of the silence, God answers him and says, I have done something about it. I made you. Aren't you glad he made Bill and Bob? But you see, he made me. And he made you. Thank you. Bill, thank you for the uh, the message this morning. A gift from the committee to you, and thank, thank you for coming. You very much. <laughs> Killed a lot of trees make that. Pottery, isn't that beautiful? If you remain standing, we've got a very unique way that we close our meetings.